BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time in the Ben Drowski show as I speak. It's Friday, April 29, 2022. Here's a headline, folks. Uh, I have not t- discussed in any way. I read the story in just utter disbelief. I don't know why I have any disbelief for what MAGA does anymore. Uh, they just making it up as they go along. And somehow or other, it seems as though mainstream America is like, yeah, it makes sense to me. Just believe stuff that's obviously fictitious. <laughs> Here we go. Republicans devise fake threat to election by way of the border, distorting immigration, immigration fears of Ohio voters. You know, I, 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 before I bring on my distinguished guests, I got to go on this rant. So David Brooks, who is a middle of the road to write, a columnist for the New York Times that I fume about from time to time. Uh, he's one of these right-wingers who is uh, always writing uh, articles, columns, advising Democrats on what to do so that they'll be more acceptable to people like him because apparently he's embarrassed to admit that he's going to vote for MAGA uh, in polite company. probably just goes in the polling booth and votes for MAGA, but then pretends like he didn't. So he gave advice to Democrats. They got to be tough about the border. Okay, because it's a real threat to voters on the border. And I'm thinking most of the states near the border, many of them voted Democrat. So clearly they're not disturbed about the quote unquote threat, which is manufactured. And most of the MAGA voters who are afraid of the border don't live anywhere near the border. Exhibit A, Alabama. Exhibit B, Mississippi. Exhibit C, North Dakota. Exhibit D, South Dakota. And I'll now throw Ohio in the mix. Where they're just making up stuff about dangers at the border to scare voters in Ohio. I I don't know how further away you can get. Well, North Dakota and South Dakota. Alaska. <laughs> oh, Lord. I don't know who is more aggravating, David Brooks for his advice or MAGA for just lying. Anyway, without further ado, I'll calm down and ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself because we got a lot to talk about. Take it away, distinguished guest. Uh, thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University. 
contributing writer at the week and author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, <clears throat> written in the long ago time of 2018. Yes. Everything you said was different. true. <laughs> It, it may be different, but everything uh, David wrote in that book is true. Is as true today as it was true then, uh, and it's just more frustrating that it seems so many people in my beloved Democratic Party listen to David Brooks. They listen to the wrong David. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've, got, I've got the distinct feeling of like being Leo DiCaprio and Don't Look Up right now. You know, where I was like, this is if you don't fix these things. This is where it's headed, you know. <laughs> Nothing got fixed. So, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, if you don't uh, fix these things. All right, I got three uh, topics uh, that I want to address with you in today's show, uh, and uh, they're each is as important as the other. Um, so I'm just going to randomly. It's one. I'll just name them. So just make sure we. Do not leave this show without discussing all three. One are the political implications of Elon Musk uh, buying uh, Twitter, if in fact the deal goes through. And I'm starting to think more and more that it may not. It's all BS. Uh, uh, the uh, the issue of abortion, speaking of Ohio, the insanity of Ohio MAGA people with their latest proposal and their arguments defending it, basically outlawing abortion, uh, and uh, how far to the right they will go uh, one state rep said that uh, women, a 13-year-old who is uh, raped and impregnated, uh, should look on the positive side. Wow. Uh, that's MAGA's view. I guess we'll start with uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, the curse of <laughs> the Democratic Party. Uh, anybody listens to David Ferris interviews know that he was way ahead of the game on this one. October of 2020, he was having nightmares about the Democrats having to rely on Joe Manchin uh, to get legislation through the Senate. And it's exactly what happened. Very provocative uh, essay you wrote about you finally you had it uh, with Joe Manchin. No more coddling Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema for that matter. Kick him out of the Democratic Party. Explain your position uh, and then some of the, the reaction that you've been getting uh, to your uh, essay. Go ahead. Sure. So um, the proposal is pretty pretty simple. I, you can't throw them out of the party, right? There's, there's no legal mechanism to be like, you're not a, you're not a Democrat anymore because they won the office, right? Um, but what, what the, the leadership of the Senate could do is, is make their lives very uncomfortable. Um, you know, strip them of their committee assignments, that is, uh, you are then just a senator at large with, with not a ton of power other than floor votes. Um, you know, Chuck Schumer could get a bit tougher with them um, rhetorically. He and, he and Joe Biden could say, you know, if, if you're not going to back the president's agenda, you don't really belong in the president's party. You know, um, and, and you think of those, those things as, as kind of a shot against the, uh, across the bow. Um, whether, you know, being mean to them... <laughs> would finally drive them out of the party, I don't know. I mean, Manchin in particular has been flirting with the Republicans for a long time. You know, there's, there was an article in Politico last week about how Republicans are trying to, you know, um, sane Republicans are trying to recruit him as the Republican candidate in 2024 to, to run um, for, for, for the president. Um, but, the, but the bottom line is, uh, you know, as you and I have talked about many times on this show, um, Democrats do not have a working majority in the Senate because of these two. Um, and the, the lack of a working majority in the Senate has meant that um, almost all of the president's signature policy goals have gone unfulfilled. It's, you know, we're, we're a few months out from the midterms at this point, right? Um, 
this, uh, there's a reckoning coming in six months. Um, and the failure to deliver on those promises, you know, so, some of those policy proposals are more popular than others. Um, but I think most of them had, had majority support um, in, in one way or another. They weren't all perfectly written. It was not a perfect piece of legislation. I'm sorry, there's no such thing. Um, but the reality is like, there's a just, it, it just, you know, <laughs> just air fries my blood when I think about all the stuff that we could have right now that we don't have. Um, you know, paid leave, uh, guaranteed parental leave when, when, a, when a child is born, universal daycare, universal pre-K, uh, a raise in the, in the minimum wage, big, big climate legislation, uh, more support for buying electric vehicles and transitioning to clean energy. I mean, I could go on and on and on, right? It's just like all the cool stuff that we fought for to have this majority is not getting done because of these two people, you know? Um, and, and the response to that is always, well, we need them for the Senate majority. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> but what do we need the Senate majority for? Right? And so at the end of the day, it comes back to this circular question of like, okay, what, what is it that we have actually achieved with the Senate majority? Um, we, got, we got Stephen Breyer out um, and replaced him with someone much better on the Supreme Court, um, Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson. And uh, uh, that's great, right? That's a, that's a, that's a big achievement. And uh, you know, all things being equal, worth dealing with these two for a while. But that's done. Um, no one else seems sick on the Supreme Court. Obviously, the Republicans are not going to step down voluntarily right now while there's a Democratic majority in the Senate. Um, and Joe Manchin just went out again today and said, uh, yeah, Build Back Better is not coming back. Right. So uh, he, he himself has gone out and said, I'm not doing we're not doing anything. I mean, look at the docket of Congress. Nothing's happening. <laughs> like they're not doing anything. They're talking about an aid package to Ukraine. And I got to be honest with you, that could happen with Chuck Schumer and the gavel, and that could happen with Mitch McConnell and the gavel. Um, and if the plan is to not do any more legislation between now and election day, um, I, I, I personally would rather take a gamble on being able to run against McConnell um, rather than trying to explain to our own voters why our, why our own majority can't get anything done because of these two people that most normal people have never even heard of, right? Um, like if you if you just pull an average Democrat who starts paying attention to politics in September of an election year off the street, and and you're like, what's the problem in, in D.C. right now? They're gonna be like, I don't know, you know, like like the economy's you know, it's, inflation is bad. The GDP shrank in the first quarter. You know, job you know job growth is great, but like I don't know, nothing's getting done. So the Democrat, I thought we gave them power. What's wrong with them? And then you're like, well, actually, it's just this. Uh, if you read. The, the floor votes. It's just this one uh, senator from, from from West Virginia, and they, they don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean, they do not care. Um, and so, uh, especially with this kind of a tie-in to the second thing you want to talk about, but I think especially with the the Roe v. Wade decision coming down this summer, um, which obviously we're also not going to do anything about, right? Because um, even if you could convince Joe Manchin to do something. You've got Kirsten Cinema saying she won't do anything without eliminating the filibuster, and you you know you can't take congressional action on abortion in like a you know a reconciliation bill, right? So it seems pretty clear to me that Roe v. Wade is going to get overturned this summer. Abortion is going to be illegal in 2025 states by September. Uh, our 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 wonderful majority in Congress is not going to do a thing about it. Okay, maybe the House will pass something, um, and the Senate won't do it. And to me, it'll be a lot easier to run. Um, against this like uh, insane rollback of, of women's rights by by being able to blame it on <laughs> Mitch McConnell than, than trying to explain why uh, the Democratic Party won't do anything about this. Um, 
So, so that's the theory. I mean, I, everybody's like, well, that's crazy. You, I mean, no one's ever voluntarily given up a, a majority in another House of Congress, right? Because they're mad at one of their members. Um, and so I, it, this is a bit um, off on the limb, but I, I come back to, look, at some point, we're going to have to build a Senate majority without Joe Manchin's seat. Right? Dude is like 74, 75. Um, no other Democrat is going to win West Virginia for the next generation. Um, and so, okay, maybe it's this year, maybe it's 2024, maybe it's 2026, but at some point that seat goes away. Um, and that's to say nothing of the possibility that he's going to switch parties anyway, which I, which I really think that he might. Um, you know, Kirsten Cinema, we would live without her seat for two years. Um, and then we'd have a pretty good shot at it in 2024, I think. So I don't think that there's a huge, you know, stipulating, I think we're going to lose the Senate anyway, right? So we have a, we have a Senate majority either, you know, as long as we want it, or we have it until January 2023. Um, getting back into the majority is easier with, with Manchin and Cinema and the party, right? But it won't achieve anything um, if they are the pivotal votes. Because either way, we need to expand our Senate majority by two seats. That expansion could be to get back to 50 without them, or it could be to get to 52 or 53 with them. Either way, they're useless, right? <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, they're really useless. Um, and so uh, I, I, I think that I, I don't, I wouldn't want to have to go through with this, right? But like if, if the party leadership is never going to take them aside and threaten them with consequences, they're just going to keep doing what they're doing, which is, which in other democracies and other party systems would be insane. Like there's, there's no system in the world um, where, uh, where individual members of political parties just routinely stab their own party in the back for fun um, to, to build up their own brand. And these two love being the center of attention. If they left the Democratic Party tomorrow morning, um, no one would care what they think about anything. Right? And then they'd have nothing. Right? Like what all they have is their ability to dominate the discourse um, and to dominate everybody's attention in DC. We have to threaten to take that away from them or we, or we can accept that nothing will get done between now and November. And if we accept that, I'd rather just, I'd just, just for the emotional satisfaction I'd rather try to drive them out of the party. And that was it. That's the thesis. Yeah. And uh, much to respond to. Uh, one, I wrote it down. We're going to lose the Senate anyway. Uh, I'll come back to that uh, when uh, I talk about abortion uh, and uh, what the connection I'll get to in a little while. But uh, so what's been the, the reaction uh, that people had. Obviously, it's a very provocative stance. And as you point out, uh, there's nothing, no, it's never been done before. Uh, it would be the ultimate use of the bully pulpit. It would be uh, Joe Biden's way, which is so un-Joe Biden, so it's never going to happen, ladies and gentlemen. This is the man that the Democratic Party chose at this moment. And I think the choice is proving more and more, uh, David, to be a foolish one. Uh, a, a man who doesn't have a lot of vigor, a man who uh, does not take strong stands on behalf of core issues, a man who is his entire career has been conciliatory and compromising, uh, who has always moved to the right when there was ever any pressure on him, strong pressure on pretty much any issue. Uh, this is the person that the Democrats have chose while we're in the midst of an ideological showdown where the Democrats are, in my view, Democrats and unions are our best guard against fascism. 
This is the man we've chosen. So it's never going to happen, okay, in a million years. Uh, but what has been the reaction? I love the reaction <laughs> Democrats. when you Something radical. Though, this is the biggest afraid of their shadow party I've ever seen. So what has the reaction to fallout been uh, from Democrats at your suggestion? I mean, mostly it's people saying things like, man, you know, I really agree with David about a lot of things, but this is nuts. Um, and, you know, what if another Senate seat opens up? What about all the lower court nominations that we need to get wrapped up, right? There's you know, probably a couple dozen nominees twisting in the wind right now waiting to get confirmed to the, um, to the district and appellate courts, and those are important seats. Um, what about Build Back Better? You know, like, what about legislation? You know, um, and I always do, I, this is the thing I always ask people to do, which is to please read to the end of the article. Um, <laughs> Where I'm like, look, obviously you don't do this tomorrow morning, right? Like you, you make one last push to get some things done, right? You, you rush some, some judicial nominations through to confirmation. Do them all at once, right? There's no, let's just do them all in one day. <laughs> no one cares. Uh, no one cares about these hearings. No one watches a hearing for a district court judge, okay? Um, do, do that all at once. Give them one last chance. Be like, look, we need you on board by June for Build Back Better, uh, or something, anything, pick one thing from Build Back Better. Can we please pass that? If you won't agree to do any of this stuff, okay, um, we're going on the warpath against you. You know, I'm going to ask Chuck to, to strip you of your committee assignments. Um, I'm going to ask no one to sit near you in the Senate. You know, like you're a lonely kid going to lunch um, at, at school. You can't find anyone to sit with. No one sit with these two. Um, they want to sit with McConnell anyway. You can smell it on them. Um, and so it's not like we, we wake up tomorrow morning, we do everything we can to drive them out of the party. What we do is we use the threat of driving them out of the party to get them to do what we want them to do, um, which, is to, which is to pass a couple of signature pieces of legislation. Um, if, if cinema won't budge on the filibuster, fine. Do, do what you can through reconciliation. Um, that's that once a year process that you can pass a budget-related bill um, with a simple majority instead of 60 votes in the Senate. Um, and if that fails, right, Confirm a bunch of judges, beg, plead, cajole, negotiate, do whatever you have to do with these two. And if that's not working by summer, when the, when the Roe v. Wade decision is going to come down, I really don't see the upside um, in, in just kind of sitting back and being like, well, yeah, we tried. <laughs> I guess they're not going to budge. Um, you, you have to issue a credible threat to them. So something Democrats are really genuinely terrible at is threatening consequences for, for, um, for defiance. Right. Um, and, uh, throw them out of the party. I mean, do everything you can to get them out of the party. Right. Again, you can't just like throw them out, but, um, do everything you can. And then, uh, you know, I think Joe Biden is belatedly realizing he's going to have to do some things by executive action now. So there's, uh, there's finally talk of, of Biden using his executive powers to forgive some student loan debt, um, <clears throat> which would be a big, um, big way to get young people back into the fold because this, this presidency and this government for the last year and a half has seemed solely concerned with um, the, the risk of losing moderate swing voters from the coalition and does not seem to care at all about losing like, you know, uh, half of the young voters who powered us to victory in the first place. Um, and so it's, it's very bad coalition politics to not act on some of these things. Like, yeah, everybody knows what the problem with student debt relief is, right? It's like, uh, there's going to be some people that like just paid off their loans. <laughs> After 20 years, we're like, well, why did I do that? You know, why, why couldn't I get the loan relief? 
Um, and I don't think that there's as many people out there as like that as we think that there are, but we certainly know what the line from Republicans is going to be about this. And I, at this point, I'm just like, who cares? <laughs> like, guys, wake up. You are on track to lose very, very badly in November. Um, you might as well take some gambles, right? Like take some gambles on delivering things to your, to critical pieces of the coalition that have to turn out in November or we will get clobbered and see what happens, okay? Give something to the young people, give give debt relief, give climate action, whatever you can do executive branch-wise on climate. Please, you got to have something to tell them that you did um, to, or else they're not going to come out. They might not come out anyway at this point, but you might as well take the risk. Um, and, uh, and and to me, the, the big, the, the gamble here would be um, deliver for the young people, deliver for once for the left flank of the coalition and hope that Republican extremism and, and the Roe v. Wade stuff will keep the, the moderate suburban voters in check. It's like, they're gonna look at, they're gonna gaze at what's gonna happen this summer and this summer's gonna be lit. Like, it's gonna be crazy what's gonna happen after these Supreme Court decisions come down. Uh, some of these voters are gonna look at this and be like, whoa, this is what they wanna do? No, okay, I'm not that mad about school closures, okay? Um, let me, let me, <laughs> I, will, I will vote for Democrats, Never mind. Uh, so that's that's the that's the strategy there, right? But I just can't I just can't handle another day of people just sitting back and letting these two uh, these two yahoos like wreck the whole, not just wreck this presidency, but put put the very future of American democracy in danger without any consequences. No, I'm with you 100. percent I urge all listeners. Uh, we took a deep dive on student debt, the political ramifications of that with the with my interview with the in these times uh, writer uh, Miles Conflasen. It's it, he made a, a much greater uh, detail. The same argument you're making, a very compelling argument, and I laugh because I, I, that day we had that conversation, uh, David, was the day that the Chicago City Council. Uh, I don't know if you follow these things. Uh, barely passed uh, Mayor uh, Lori Lightfoot's proposal to give uh, gas cards to uh, Chicago voters uh, who were. Uh, suffering from higher prices at the pump and there's a great debate in there and you know I was making fun of the alderman but the point is is like you do something for people it was like everybody's oh is an election year stunt yeah that's what you do okay you do something for people to give them a reason to vote for you now you can argue all the gas cars are bad for the environment with you know we should be in spending more money investing in public transportation yada yada yeah yeah she's literally putting money into someone's pocket you know what i'm saying it's like a proactive move why doesn't joe biden take a proactive move if he if he abolishes student debt you're putting money into people's pockets it's like that miles my guest is facing a staggering debt uh, payments. It literally, his joke was he would buy bulls tickets with it, but he could go, uh, <laughs> you know, buy more groceries. I don't feed the economy anyway. Uh, but once again, you could always depend on the Democrats to be so afraid of their shadow, so afraid of that counter argument that you just raised, you know, the Pete Buttigieg argument, cause that's the dumbass argument he raised. If you recall in the primary, well, there's the guy who paid, that's not fair to him. Um, so, uh, all right, uh, enough ranting and railing on that issue. Uh, let's move on to uh, abortion and the bills, as you pointed out, being proposed by MAGA throughout the country in any uh, Republican state. Uh, he, here in Illinois, it's a Democratic state at the moment. Um, but if, if Pritzker's ousted, 
uh, it will become a Republican state and we'll have some of these same bills. And if Roe's gone, there's absolutely no protection whatsoever. It's every state for itself. And I guess California will be the last outstanding state uh, that recognizes, well, New York, uh, abortion rights. So um, I read to you, I sent you an article, uh, the comments, it was a Washington Post article about a right-wing Republican, I guess that's redundant, uh, in um, uh, Ohio who said that uh, if a 13-year-old tw- is impregnated by a rapist, uh, she should be forced to give birth and view it as an opportunity. That is one of the most twisted and demented points of view uh, that I've seen expressed by an elected official. And, um, and yet the Republican Party has embraced that point of view. I have not seen anybody from the Republican Party denounce that point of view. Uh, they got all the votes they need for the legislation, which would punish the 13-year-old uh, effectively. Uh, so what's your thoughts about this, uh, the position that the Republican Party has taken uh, on abortion and the impact it will have uh, going forward on, uh, well, our the midterms? Yeah, sure. I mean. Um... The Republican Party has gotten very extreme on abortion in a, in a very short time frame, and I think it reveals what a lot of them were thinking all along. Um, and and the the context of this is this per, this feeling of like legislative permissiveness, knowing with almost one hundred percent certainty that the Supreme Court is going to gut the existing abortion regime um, and kind of let states do all kinds of crazy things, right? Like um, until recently. <laughs> Most saying, even even Republicans that were generally opposed to abortion would say things like, you know, of, of course, with the exception of, of rape and incest, you know, so, something like that. Okay. Um, and now the, the states are passing laws, you know, Texas, Idaho, um, that that do not make these exceptions. Right. That would that would force um, someone to, to carry their their rapist or, or their. I don't know what, I don't know what, the, what do we call the perpetrator of incest? Um, the carry the rapist baby to term, right? And, and then raise it and then say like, good luck. You know, it's a great opportunity for you. You know, <laughs> like a, um, like you've been hired at Best Buy or something. Like just, just, just insane, right? Um, and they're not being shy about it. Um, I think like the comment that this, this lawmaker in Ohio made the other day, um, 10 years ago would have ended um, someone's Senate bid, even in a red state. Right? Like if you, we've, I think we've talked about this a couple of times, but, uh, and I always get these knuckleheads confused. There was, there was Todd Aiken in Missouri. Um, I think that was 2012, right? Um, and then Richard Mordock in Indiana, maybe it was the same year, I, I, but I think they were staggered. I think it was 2010 and 2012. Anyway, all these old dead white men kind of run, run together for me. But, but the point is, um, you know, they both made comments um, that suggested that, you know, being pregnant by, you know, getting pregnant by a rapist is, you know, it's part of God's plan, or it's a, it's a great opportunity for you. Um, you know, it's a gift, but in it, and it wrecked their Senate bids in red states. You know, they, they lost these races because of the comments that they made about um, these extreme, very extreme comments they made about abortion um, and rape, right? Like rape is this rape is the central theme here, right? Like, which is 10 years ago, the institutional Republican Party was was running away from candidates who said uh, that we will not make except you know we yes we want to repeal Roe v Wade, but we will make these exceptions and and they run away maybe not publicly but like very quietly they bury these people, 
Uh, they don't want anyone in the party who's going to say that we don't make these exceptions, right? Rape, incest, the life of the mother, right? Like these are, these used to be just standard boilerplate things that are not controversial in American society at all, except to the 10% of complete maniacs who want to impose, um, you know, Handmaid's Tale uh, tyranny on the country. And what you have seen since the since the tea leaves have, have shown a, a repeal of Roe v. Wade um, is people showing their true colors. You know, that is Republicans who want to repeal Roe, they don't care about rape victims. They don't care about incest victims. They don't care if the if the if somebody's going to die on the table um, because they're forced to give birth. They don't care. They just don't care. Right. Like they they if, if you really believe that the, that abortion is a is a is a crime, you know, and that it's it's forbidden by your religion. Okay. There's nothing in the, there's nothing in the Bible that's like, okay, yeah, except uh, rape and incest, right? <laughs> there's nothing in the, there's nothing in the Bible about abortion anyway, right? Like there's, but like, um, if, if your reading of, of scripture is that it forbids this thing, it doesn't make exceptions for the intent, right? It doesn't make exceptions for why you became pregnant. It doesn't make exceptions for what might happen to you if you, if you go through with giving birth. These are extremists. Um, and when you give extremists power, they do extremist things. Um, when you refuse to take any action on the Supreme Court, which has been packed by the right um, in all kinds of different ways over the last 20 years, this has been coming, this is like a train coming down the tracks for, for 15, 20 years. And everybody the whole time just thought, wow, man, they won't, okay, they, well, they, they won't go through with it. Well, if they do go through with it, they'll just, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll gut Roe without overturning it explicitly. Well, if they do overturn Roe, don't worry, because, you know, most states will, will keep abortion legal anyway. None of these things are going to be true. Okay. Um, I will say Illinois has legalized abortion um, by statute. I believe that was in 2019. Um, and so Republicans would have to take over the state house and the legislature, which seems kind of improbable to me. Um, so there are, there are the, the deepest blue states, Illinois, New York, California, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Jersey, Maryland, you know, these, these state, you know, I don't know if it's 10 or 12 states, um, the Democrats tend to win by double digits. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident that abortion is safe there um, unless Republicans try to um, try to make abortion illegal by statute through Congress with a Republican president. And so uh, what I've been trying, what, what I've said to people is, uh, don't worry, abortion is safe in Illinois until 2025. <laughs> okay. Um, but that's not going to help most people in most states. Um, and so the fallout from this is going to be extraordinary. Um, people People have looked at what was happening in Texas, I think, and 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 they're thinking again. These are people that don't pay very close attention to politics. They're like, well, that'll get struck down, right? Like we've because this is this is again, this has been going on for 10, 15, 20 years, um, where where the most extreme states will pass like some demented abortion law. It'll get struck down by a federal judge, and then that's that, you know. Um, and people seem very slow to wake to the to the reality that the Republicans now have a six to three majority on the Supreme Court. They have, I believe they have a 5-4 majority to do all kinds of crazy things <laughs> and to just cut the chief justice out of it. That's John Roberts, um, who I don't think is going to go along with this, but they don't need him anymore. That's the, that's the big thing that changed when, the, when Barrett got on the court and when Ginsburg died is that they don't need, they don't need, they don't need John Roberts anymore. So anyway, um, I think that there could be very significant electoral repercussions for Republicans who who go along with this, because I think that the, it's going to be a big shock to um, non politically obsessed people when when Roe v. Wade is overturned this summer. I think a lot of people are not even paying attention to it, not going to see it coming. Um, 
treat Texas and, and Missouri and Georgia like some, you know, some other planet that they've never visited, even though women uh, are already struggling um, accessing services there. And if you think they're going to stop at outlawing abortion, they're not. They're going to come for birth control. They're going to go. They're going to come for Plan B. They're going to come for uh, sodomy laws. They're going to come for um, Obergefell, right? Uh, that's the that's the 2014 decision uh, that legalized same-sex marriage across the country. I, I guarantee you, what's going to happen um, starting probably after the midterms is states are going to states are going to pass bans on same-sex marriage again. Um, just just blanket bans, not here. Um, and they're going to run it up the federal courts, and it's. They're going to, you know, Supreme Court will overturn Obergefell. People think they won't do it because there's a social consensus against that, right? There's a there's a robust and consistent majority for the framework of Roe v. Wade, which is itself a compromise, right? Um, it, it allows abortion um, up until a certain time period in the pregnancy, you know, certain exceptions after that, right? Um, and that consensus is pretty popular, right? Like that is to say people on the left who want to have abortion fully, completely legal with no obstacles until, you know, the day before you get birth, (laughs) they are out there. Um, they're also off off on a limb, right? Um, that is not a popular position, but what is also not a popular position is overturning Roe v. Wade. And it's going to be Republicans that do it. It's going to be Republicans that own it. It's going to be Republican States that are where abortion is illegal. And I think that that, um, that could really unsettle our politics um, and, and give de- Democrats who probably will be too stupid to seize it, but it could it could give Democrats an opening um, to really go on the offensive about what the GOP has become and what they want to do to us. Yeah, by the way, I, I just want to uh, take exception to one thing you said, and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole here because uh, uh, there's I, w- I really want to talk about other things, specifically uh, uh, Musk and Twitter, but I'm not as confident uh, as you are that Illinois is uh, bulletproof uh, on this issue. Uh, I take very seriously the threat uh, to J.P. Pritzker's reelection campaign that's represented by the millions and millions of dollars that Kenny G., Ken Griffith, has pledged uh, to pump into uh, whoever is the Republican nominee. He's already kicked in $25 million for Richard Irvin. Richard Irvin's running mate is... Uh, would fit in with the anti-abortion crowd in Ohio, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas. I mean, she is an extremist anti-abortionist. And so I feel is that uh, what they'll do is run a stealth campaign on this issue, try to avoid it. Uh, And if they prevail, David, if they ride the tides, everybody's predicted a big Republican victory in November. If they ride the tides to... um, on uh, fear of crime uh, and uh, what what is it parental rights uh, and take back one house and win the uh, the uh, governor, governor's sh- uh, mansion, it's going to be a it'll be on the burner. You know what I mean? We'll be fighting that fight here in Illinois. And maybe the legislation they propose won't be as extreme as the stuff you know that may be a little more tactical about it, but. Uh, the the anti-abortion forces in Illinois have been pushing and pushing and pushing without stop for years. They just can't get any traction on this issue. Uh, so I take it very uh, serious. And um, I, I, I really hope uh, that Terry Cosgrove and Personal PAC, which is the leading uh, reproductive rights uh, political outfit in the state of Illinois, is paying attention. I got a feeling they will. All right. 
Uh, let's um, uh, uh, switch to uh, uh, Elon Musk and Twitter. Uh, I'm utterly obsessed with this uh, on many, many levels. And as I said, I had a great conversation uh, with Sam Holloway on what this says about capitalism, uh, out-of-control capitalism. I'd like to talk to you about the political uh, ramifications uh, if it goes through and Elon Musk takes over. You know, it's funny, uh, David, Elon Musk tries prides himself as a libertarian, uh, and, uh, and yet he's aligned himself politically with MAGA, which at the same time is some of the most restrictive rules uh, outlawing what uh, women can do with their bodies. I, I just like the central hypocrisies and contradictions of all these players is fully on display. I think this one is so obvious, but it just had to make that point. Um, so, uh, what's your thoughts about what will happen politically, the political impact of Elon Musk, if he does take control of Twitter? Sure. I mean, first of all, I just want to say, but all libertarians, almost all libertarians, when, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you know, they're like, I, you know, I'm a liberal, you know, I, I believe in prostitution and, you know, legalized drugs and all, all that stuff and women's rights. And when the rubber hits the road and they have to choose, all they want is their taxes cut. You know what I mean? They don't care about anything else. That's, that's, that's all day long. You know what I mean? That's what being a libertarian is. You just don't want to pay your taxes. So just say, absolutely. <laughs> that's fine. You know, Elon, you don't want to pay your taxes. That's fine. You don't anyway. So it's good for you. Um, so the, the political ramifications of Musk taking over Twitter, I mean, first of all, this is just so fascinating. I mean, you have, he, he's going to slide over from commanding one monumentally overvalued entity to another, right? <laughs> like um, Tesla's market capitalization is like $1.2 trillion, which is more than the next five biggest automakers put together. You know, Honda, Hyundai, Ford, GM, you take all of their market caps together and it's not Tesla. And Tesla produces like 120th the amount of cars that they do. Okay, the whole thing is nuts. It's a bubble waiting to pop. Maybe he knows that and he, he wants to have a something else going on in his life <laughs> when Tesla's stock drops in half. I've never been in a Tesla. I couldn't tell you what they're like. They're nice looking cars, I guess, but they cost like $100,000, right? So that's going to um, that's that's gonna put a ceiling on the number of units that you can move in a year. It's a luxury car company masquerading as a, as a green, as a green uh, revolutionary company. It's just, it's just a luxury car maker that you plug in instead of put gas into. God bless. So Twitter, um, <laughs> you know, Elon Musk is, he's very active on Twitter, right? Like I don't follow him, but I can't avoid him. Okay? I would have to mute the words Elon Musk if I didn't want to read about this anymore. Um, and he's a weirdo. He's a complete weirdo on Twitter. He's always, he's always tweeting bizarre things and doing strange things. And I, I've come to believe it's a kind of publicity stunt that's been very effective for him. You know, uh, that is when he's like, the way we're going to get around in the future is we're going to build tunnels. But, but put individual passenger cars in them and, and move them along. I don't really understand this, how this works. Like it's like a mnemonic, like a, like one of those bank teller things where you put the, you know, you put the paper in, I forget what that's called. Anyway, I, you know, you read about this and you just laugh. You're like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life, right? Like, how are you going to move that many cars? Just, just forget it, right? Um, go, go dig your boring tunnel, you weirdo. Um, and all the space stuff and launching himself into space. It's, it's all part of, Elon Musk, the brand, and Elon Musk, the brand is about radically inflating the value of his holdings so that he is the world's richest man because of a car company that sells less than a million units per year. That's nuts, right? But Twitter is the perfect acquisition for someone like that, right? 
Twitter, um, it, you know, is, is mildly profitable, I guess. It has a very thin margin, um, takes, gets most of its money from ads, um, and, and the overwhelming majority of its users um, are highly educated, wealthy, left-leaning Democrat types, right? Um, partially because that's the way it's always been, partially because some conservatives have left Twitter to go try their hand at Parler or Truth, you know, the Donald Trump's dumb website, and or they've just quit in a huff and gone back to Facebook so they can be with their um, radicalized elderly friends. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, this is all a, this is all a wind up to the pitch of I'm not actually that worried about this ultimately, um, because there's a lot of sunk costs with a network like Twitter. Um, I, have, I have some some friends on the left who are like just itching to quit Twitter if this happens. Um, and I'm like, you can do that, you know, but do you, I mean, do you know how long it took me to get 6,700 followers? <laughs> that was just not even a big number, Ben, but it took me like eight years to build up this extremely modest little following. Um, and, and people who are, who have significant followings on Twitter, but who are not in other ways famous, um, like a lot of academics or like, uh, you know, Pope hat, you know, all these characters on Twitter, I don't even know who these people are, but they're famous for being famous on Twitter. You can't just like wake up one day and reproduce that, right? The value of the network for, for someone like that is that you already have the followers and you already have the platform. Right? So I think that the degree to which people might flee Twitter if Musk takes over, I think is overstated. Um, I think the degree to which people are like, Republicans are gonna come back to Twitter is overstated. Um, that is uh, one of the things that's made Twitter more pleasant in the last five or six years than it used to be. Um, one, Trump is gone. Two, Twitter, you know, half-heartedly but meaningfully responded to criticisms about harassment, um, particularly of women, but just the whole website circa 2015, 2016 was, was just a cesspool of like anti-Semitism and Nazis. And um, they have actually done some real work to, um, to at least in, in, the, in the words of our pandemic coordinators, to give you the tools to, to protect yourself from, from online trolls. Um, and there are actually a series of like very quite simple but magical things that you can do on Twitter so that you don't see this stuff. Um, you know, you, you don't get notifications from anyone who doesn't follow you. Um, you, you mute words that bother you. Uh, if there's a topic you don't want to read about, you can, you can pretty much just put it out um, and not have to deal with it. And that, <clears throat> for me, has made the user experience much, much more pleasant over the last few years. Um, and I think if Musk wants to come in and change that, he's going to run into a problem. Right? The problem is, my man, you just paid $46 billion for a company that's worth like maybe five, right? Um, and you want to do a bunch of things that's going to drive away your most dedicated users? That's insane, okay? And he's out there floating ideas like um, uh, websites are going to have to pay a fee to embed tweets um, and news stories and, and things like that. Like, you know, you read anything, Vox and BuzzFeed and whatever, when they're writing about things, they will just take a, you know, they'll just take a tweet embedded in the story. I um, mean, that has, I think, played a big role in dramatically in increasing Twitter's public reach and profile and influence because other, because journalists tweet it. I mean, <laughs> journalists treat it um, like it's a really important platform full of really important people doing really important things. And if you drive half of those really important people off of the website by, um, by changing the things that make the website bearable, to be around, um, you, you are not, that's not good business. Right? Like, um, you, you have to keep the current user base of, of Twitter happy, knowing 
that you have probably, you are approaching the ceiling of how many people want to be on Twitter in the first place. Um, I think something of something like 70 or 75% of Americans are on Facebook, um, but only 25% are on Twitter. And that, that 25% is not a representative slice of the, of the electorate. It's not a representative slice of, of the country. It is mostly people like me and other journalists, um, celebrities, writers, um, who, you know, who are already famous, who, who, who think out loud on Twitter, um, post their stories. And then, um, the, the majority of Twitter users just consume that content. Like they, they'll retweet the, the, the Washington post reporters. They will retweet, um, some, some actor that they like, or a musician that they like, uh, there are little communities in Twitter, you know, um, where enthusiasts of various different weird things that I'm not into, you know, they, they all know each other. They're like, there's a skateboarding Twitter, you know, there's a, um, you know, there's a, a Axis and Allies Twitter, you know, there's, uh, there's a diplomacy Twitter, you know, this, this game diplomacy people play. It's a whole nother episode about that. But um, what, what most, most of Twitter's users don't want <laughs> is for there to be less content moderation and, and more ability for, for Nazis to like come into their timeline um, and, and tweet hostile things about, about minorities and, and, and Jewish people and things like that. That's, there's just no demand for what, for what Elon Musk wants to do. Right? Elon Musk is responding to some like 2020 era complaint from the right about shadow bans and um, how it's so, it's so unfair for Twitter to, uh, to censor our speech, free speech. It's like, look, man. <laughs> You say what you will about Twitter, but Twitter, like the First Amendment does not apply to Twitter. Okay. I just, it's like every semester in class, I just, I have to tell people over and over again, the First Amendment protects you from censorship by the state, not by censorship, not, does not protect you from censorship or, you know, uh, limitations on speech from a private entity like Twitter. So my take on this is really, this whole thing is overblown, right? I, we, we talked earlier about how I'm not even sure that Musk is going to go through with it. If Musk, if he has a one financial advisor who's, who has any ability to tell him the truth, they would tell him not to do this. <laughs> That's a bad idea in the first place. It's like, he's already famous on Twitter. Like he already has a huge following on Twitter to pump up his car sales and, and get people talking about him, you know, I don't know, trying to launch a, a Tesla on Mars or what, you know, whatever he wants to do, right? He's got, he's, got the, he's got the best possible setup right now. And what he will be doing is he will, he will become the face of, uh, of anger about changes to a platform and that anger could seep over into his other businesses. And I, I think ultimately that's going to be very unwise for him. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he came in and he appointed a new CEO and they threw some stuff against the wall to try to raise more money and they failed and then he quit or he doesn't buy the place in the first place. That's my take on it. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I'll put that one aside cause that's could be a whole show uh, on whether he goes through with it. I, I'm like 50, 50 on that at the moment. Here's what uh, upsets me about this. And uh, I talk about this on the show all the time. Uh, and the way I always say it, it's, uh, I always have a sports metaphor. They're, uh, they're, they're working the refs. And so what Elon Musk has joined is the chorus, and it's a very loud chorus from the right, that somehow or other they are the victims of censorship and authoritarianism from the left uh and they just pound this drum relentlessly and it does two things one it pushes the discourse to the further to the right uh when other when like centrists like bill maher for instance join their chorus 
uh, and just feed them this notion, uh, Joe Rogan, etc. When the guys like that join this chorus, even Dave Chappelle joined this chorus for a while. It's funny after uh, Will Smith smacked Chris Rock in the face at the Oscars, which was the ultimate form of censorship and cancel culture. I did not hear Dave Chappelle come out with a declaration uh, against, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? It, I, it's funny. I, they've been kind of quiet on that front. But I take it very seriously because really what they're doing is uh, covering up for the real censorship that's going on in this country, which is coming from the right, which is telling, dictates how you teach math how you teach history, whether you can talk about slavery in the schools, what's offensive. You, you can't offend people over their religious beliefs, et cetera, and so forth. Or uh, going back to abortion, doctors can't freely discuss this matter with their patients. So I view censorship, I view this as a strategic move by the right uh, to inflame their base, make themselves feel like victims, and then do exactly to the the country what they say are being done to them. And that is Elon Musk to a T. That that dude, for the world's richest man, is the biggest crybaby I've ever seen. I mean, I, I said this the other day. I watch a lot of basketball. I'm watching um, the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks whining and crying after the refs finally called a charge and Giannis has been barreling over my beloved Bulls all games. I go, man, you're worse than Elon Musk. You're a bigger crybaby. You know what I'm saying? Wah, wah. <laughs> but David, I take it serious. I take it seriously as even if he doesn't buy it, I, I'm with you kind of like everything you said was great analysis. Like, But I, that pushing, pushing, pushing that theme, pounding that drum, brainwashing people like Bill Maher, you know, I, I take that very seriously as a powerful force. Uh, Ron DeSantis is trying to ride that horse all the way to the White House. You know what yeah, I'm saying? It might, it might work. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so I, you know, my, my dissertation is a long, this is a, let's take a little digression here. Like I, I used to work on issues of social media and authoritarianism, you know? And so I, I don't really do that anymore. Um, but it, you know, I, this was the mid two thousands, you know? And so I've watched so many efforts to start competitor networks to the, to the behemoths, you know? Um, like, um, in the, in the late, you know, I don't know what to call it, mid aughts, you know, there were, there were efforts to create a Facebook that was free and nonprofit, right? So it wouldn't be advertisements and there wouldn't be like the profit motive and all the other things, terrible things about Facebook. Um, and it was, it was a great idea and it really appealed to progressives who were getting frustrated with some of the things Facebook was doing and it went nowhere. Okay. Um, and the same thing is going to happen to Trump's social media network and the same thing happened to Parler and Gab and all these other places, because fundamentally I think, and this is not exclusive to the right, but I think there's a, I don't think people really understand where the value of Facebook and Twitter come from. It's not that people love them, you know, um, it's that it's that the value of a social network rises with the number of people that are using it. And the more, the more reach you have, the more people that you're connected with, um, the, the better that that network can, can serve you. I mean, the reason that most people have not quit Facebook is not because they, they love reading you know, their, their drunk uncle's posts about, uh, about caravans at the border. Um, it's because leaving, I have, I don't know, like 1500 friends on Facebook. Do you know how long it would take to recreate that? This is assuming I want to recreate that. Right. <laughs> but like, if, but it's just saying you're somebody that are like, it's like all these people I share pictures of my kid with, and they're connected to my parents and, and my friends from high school. Um, and you, you just can't snap your fingers and put that back together. The, 
the sites that have taken off um, in the last 10 years are sites that do something fundamentally different than what Facebook and Twitter do. Um, that's Instagram, which is, uh, which is also Facebook, by the way, <laughs> it's just owned by Facebook now, but Instagram is different than Facebook, right? There's, there's, it's just, you're just like, put up a picture, um, <laughs> and then put up a story. It was, it was qualitatively different than Facebook. It was like, uh, you can build a network, right? You kind of use Facebook to, to populate that, that network. And instead of a bunch of political posts, you, you get to post, uh, it's just, just pictures of your kids or just reels of you dancing or whatever. Kind of what TikTok is. I'm, I'm not really on TikTok, but it is. Uh, it does something that these other sites don't, right? And so there's all these efforts to recreate Facebook and Twitter by taking the same idea to a new um, URL. Are all going to be frustrated because no one wants to do the work of put like no one except an ideologue is like I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit Twitter, and I'm going to put my Twitter following back together painstakingly over the course of the next ten years on Parler, right? It's just not going to happen. Um, and so. There's more inertia built into these systems than I think people realize. Right? It's hard to drive them. It's hard to drive people off of these platforms because they do derive value from them. Um, it's hard to fundamentally change the direction of these platforms because there's going to be pushback. Um, and all the while, you have to be aware of what your user base wants. And so the things that seem to annoy Elon Musk about Twitter are are like victories that were painstakingly um, achieved by by people pushing Twitter to take seriously the problem of harassment um, and extremism, and radicalism on the site. Um, and, and if he succeeds in dismantling those things and making it an unpleasant space for people to be around, um, all he's going to do is cut into his own bottom line. And at the end of the day, just going back to the, I just want my taxes cut thing. I really think at the end of the day, all this dude, all this dude really cares about is publicity and making money. Um, and he's, I think he's going to quickly run into a wall here where, where he, he realizes that that's not the way to do it. I agree with you about the threat of censorship. It's a, it's a huge problem. Complaints about Twitter and, you know, on the right and Facebook on the right. In particular, I've had to have to let Facebook to do some things that I think um, have made it a, a better engine for authoritarianism. Um, but but again, Facebook's user base is much different. It's much larger. There's more mega people on there. Um, I know it feels like there's a lot of mega people on Twitter, right? <laughs> but the, but but the data shows that it's not. Um, the data shows that Twitter is a minority of the population, um, left leaning, highly educated, um, and uh, and and not interested in any of this stuff. So. Uh, I, my attitude is like, let's just see, you know, it, the, the acquisition wouldn't go through to the end of the year anyway. Um, I think probably even after the midterms. So uh, in terms of like for him fully taking the company over, there's a lot of ways this won't happen. Um, but it's, it, to me, it's been a healthy reminder of the, like the the central role in our discourse played by these social media companies and the, the way that the left kind of needs to pay attention here. Um, so maybe something that we could do if somebody that we liked took over Facebook, for instance. <laughs> um Always on the defensive and never on the offense, right? That's yes. uh, that's the play. And I will uh, will leave it with that last line: pay attention. And you know, it's the, so many people I know on the left will dismiss issues like this uh, as irrelevant, not worthy of their time. There's more important things, more fun. And they'll start delving into marks, and I'm like, well, the right's cleaning your clock. Pay attention, okay? I mean, this stuff affects you, ladies and gentlemen. I know you want to be above it all, but really you're in the middle of it all, okay? Uh, yeah, it reminds me of um, the late Todd Gitlin. You know, remember, remember Todd Gitlin? He died this yes. year. 
yeah, wrote a, wrote a great, it was a book or a pamphlet, but it was called Marching on the English Department While the Right Takes the White House, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but sometimes I think, you know, I, I don't want to go on a big long rant about this, but I think sometimes people in our coalition are not necessarily have their eye on the ball in terms of what's the most important thing that we need to be paying attention to right now, you know? So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's a good spot as, uh, as ever to leave it. Uh, David Ferris, thank you very much. Every other week he comes on the show, we talk politics. Uh, and uh, we did a little economics uh, today. So, uh, And I didn't even get into my whole uh, Twitter, China, Tesla thing. We'll save that for another time. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for having uh, me back, man. Can't wait. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.